Hey, Rob, time for another bonus episode. Well, I'm always up for another bonus episode. What do we have going on? Well, Tony is with us. Welcome, Tony. Hey, Tony. No, it's great to be here again. So, full disclosure, we are recording this uh, the beginning of December, but when it's released, it will probably be released um, either New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, depending on what part of the world you are in. Uh, so, Happy New Year's to everybody. Yeah, Happy Holidays, Joseph and Tony. Yeah. And everybody listening. <laughs> exactly. So, Tony... You and I, not too long ago, we, we had a pretty spectacular conversation with our new buddy, Patrick, from uh, Australia. He, of course, is one of the um, hosts of uh, one of my favorite podcasts called Known Pleasures. We talked about OMD. It was a four-hour conversation. Uh, so, obviously, we, had a, we left a lot of, the, a lot of excellent um, content on the cutting room floor, so to speak. So we are going to just play it here. The first half is going to be um, a lot of the conversation that we had to cut out um, talking about OMD and their their catalog, uh, particularly the second half of their catalog. We, we really had to cut out a lot of it. So... So there's going to be a lot more music by OMD, which is which is going to be excellent. And then uh, we kind of shift to talk, have a more personal conversation with Patrick about um, his experiences um, as a teenager consuming all of this excellent music in real time in Australia uh, and talk about his podcast and some of the some of the adventures that he and his his buddies have had over the last six years, um, you know, covering all of this excellent music. So, Rob, you totally missed out. Um, I did, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I listened to the episode, and I thought it was wonderful, by the way. It was fantastic. Yeah. Also, it was interesting to hear an episode without me being in it, <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it's kind of bittersweet. Like I, I had a lot going on and a lot to do and I, I needed to step away for that episode. And then I'm listening to it going, wow, I kind of wish I was there, you know? Um, <laughs> so, but the, but it was fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Well, my big takeaway from, um, that episode and just diving, um, very purposefully into OMD's catalog, particularly their, early catalog, which I wasn't as familiar with is, I mean, I've always liked OMD, but, but I have a lot more respect for them that, than I did going in. So, uh, it was interesting, uh, in my, our conversation with Patrick, he kind of compared OMD to, uh, or at least the late, late eighties OMD to something like Howard Jones, that sounded about right to me. So for me, the appeal of OMD in the past has been just as light, kind of fluffy, very, very catchy pop music, uh-huh. the same way that I liked Howard Jones and, and, and artists like that. But man, going into their first four albums, they have 
gone up several notches as far as my my like true respect for them as sort of post-punk pioneers doing their own thing wow. and um and they are i think they might be real contenders when we at the very end of this podcast once we get all the way through 1986 and we go back and we revisit our top 10 new wave bands list OMD might make it just on the strength of those first four albums. Um, really, yeah, just for sure. some extraordinary music. I, I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for, for what they were doing in the early 80s. So iTunes said that Col Colossal Youth was my most played album or streamed album of the year. OMD is my most played artist of nineteen or twenty twenty three, according to iTunes. Yeah, yeah. Well, nice. <laughs> I, I tell you what, being being a host and preparing for um, these episodes, it completely throws off what Spotify thinks your musical tastes are. Because <laughs> Spotify keeps asking me, "Do you want to jump back into the Lack album?" <laughs> I keep going, "No, no, no." <laughs> oh joseph <laughs> so uh, um before we uh jump into uh this this uh, extra content about omd and patrick from australia uh just a couple of, of notes off the top of my head I want to clarify um some of the compliments that we made um about the song "If You Leave," so I, I, th I, I think that what we said was a little bit misleading about the way that that song was created. So it was, as far as we know, um, the legend is, and as far as we know, it's true. It was written and recorded within in a twenty-four hour period. Uh, by OMD. However, we implied, and I don't know that this is true, I don't know that it's not true, but I, I, it seems unlikely that it's true. We implied that after 24 hours, it was completed and handed over um, to uh, John Hughes, which we don't know that that's true. What's more likely is because OMD had to go on tour in a day or so. So they probably just had this 24 hour window. They did it and handed it over to the co-producer, a gentleman named Tom Lord Alge. Probably, particularly since at this point they're, you know, recording, everything's digital with MIDI. It was probably days, if not weeks, of, of post-production um, before the song was completed and then handed over. Who knows? It could have been handed over in 24 hours. Seems really unlikely. We kind of implied that that was, that, that was the case, and so I just want to set the record straight on that. And then one last thought. Uh, Tony... We are finally going to get to hear Apollo 11. <laughs> so you, <laughs> you mentioned it several times in the I episode, know. and then and then we we didn't actually feature it. 
So now we get a feature. And I know that that was a song that, that played a, a big role for you. Yeah. And I still stand by Love and Violence. I know you hate that song, <laughs> but I listened to it several times in the last couple of weeks. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I love this song. I know it annoy, would annoy <laughs> Joseph. but. <laughs> so, so this is very much um, like what we did with the uh, extra content from the B-52s. So the flow is not as natural as a typical episode because we were kind of jumping from subject to subject. So please bear, bear that in mind. Um, it might, might be a little jarring as we switch, switch conversations, but um, all of the content is uh, quite good. So we hope that you enjoy it. Rob and I have this ongoing discussion about early synth pop and we obviously have very different tastes when it comes to synth pop and I've been thinking about it a lot like the differences between the prominent synth pops uh, bands around 1980 and basically what I've come come up with is this so OMD is a synth pop band they are human beings that will readily admit that they are flawed human beings. Gary Newman is a human being that will reluctantly admit that he's a human <laughs> being. John Fox is a human being who doesn't, won't admit that he's a human being. And then um, Kraftwerk would never admit that they're human beings because why would they? They're obviously not. They're some sort of like alien android hybrid mm. from a different dimension. Rob likes that sort of extreme where I like the really human, flawed, raw, grimy sort of synth pop. So any thoughts on that? I, I know that you're a big uh, Gary Newman fan. Yeah, I mean, um, this is where where nostalgia com completely takes over my uh, my, se yeah. my sense of logic, in that my introduction to kind of post punk new wave music was when I was in England as a fifteen year old on holiday with my family, fourteen fifteen year old, um, and our friend's electric two way army song came on top of the pops, you know, like the uh, the big TV show there, and it was the first time I had ever heard this kind of music. It hadn't made it to Australia. Things tended to be released in Australia three months or four months or five months later. song wasn't just on top of the pops it was the number one record in england that week 
And it was like, man, that is my music. That's the music. You know, as a 15-year-old, I think, that's the music I'm going to love for the rest of my life. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was, it was that kind of level of, um, of surety and, kind of, and, and commitment to it. And, and there, you know, I think maybe it was the kind of humanness in some way of, the, of, of orchestra manoeuvres' early, early music that, that made me like it but, but not love it. And and I think grimy is a really interesting adjective to use about them. And I and I think Joseph, you you use that term um, in the podcast you did about the about the album itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been thinking I've been thinking about that since since I heard that that podcast that episode. And yeah, I mean they were they if you think of their image, you know, like they wore suits and they kind of did their buttons up on their shirts and they were very ungrimy in terms mm-hmm. of their in terms of their image. So, so it's interesting that you describe their overall sound uh-huh. as, as grimy. So to me, when I say grimy, I'm talking about the fact that it's a, it's a, a synthesizer plugged in analog mm, into yeah, a speaker. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, it's yeah. not, there's not a lot of studio stuff. It's not slick. It's not clean. It's, um, you know, it's, it's feels kind of, lean and mean to mm, me mm. yeah now there was, there's certainly a kind of a, a rawness to it yeah. absolutely yeah. Tony I have never heard Anola Gay played on American commercial radio. Have have you ever heard it on the radio? I I just, I don't think it's just ever had a presence here in the United States. No, um, you know, we uh, haven't quite talked about this, but in the U.S., the first two albums weren't released. Mm. Uh, Mm. They basically were compiled, and I don't know if you want to call it the best of, but essentially... Some of the songs from both albums were put out in the U.S., so we didn't originally have either of these two albums as as proper releases in the U.S. Yeah, um, yeah. So my exposure is, like I mentioned earlier, the best of OMD that I had on CD in the late 80s and, and where I heard Electricity and Enola Gay, that's where I heard it. Yeah, well, I think that most of the rest of the world would be probably surprised to hear that Enola Gay... OMD's most streamed song, uh, <laughs> yeah. never, yeah. as far as I know, never got any sort of any sort of commercial radio play here in the United mm. States. It was just completely ignored at certainly at the time, but even afterwards, I I, I think you'd be hard pressed to go to a classic rock or classic new wave station here in the United States and hear Enola Gay. You'd hear other OMD songs, but I, I, I don't think you'd hear this one. Maybe, maybe it's because of the subject matter. You know, it's interesting because I know that Depeche Mode has cited uh, early OMD as a, a big influence, in particular Vince Clark, who was on Depeche Mode's first album, uh, and then left the band. For me, one of my Desert Island discs, one of my 10 all-time favorite records, 
is Yaz or Yazoo UK's Upstairs at Eric's, which is, you know, Vince Clark's um, basically his production and Alison Moyer's vocals. For me, that album now lines up perfectly with the early OMD album. completely understand how they're related how he was influenced by omd um but uh that certainly lines up well with me with vince clark well i I was just going to say about vince that he did specify the song almost which we heard earlier as his uh as his specific sort of turning point in in his life and i think it might have been a b-side Mm-hmm. Um, to one of the releases of the Electricity single, I think. A couple of years ago, we, in our podcast, chose our top five post-punk albums. And I think if I went as far as number six or number seven, I, I didn't choose Architecture and Morality in my top five, but it would be, it would be getting, getting up there now. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it is far and away my favourite OMD album because I think it's almost flawless. As an album. And was Winston fired just before this album? Is that <laughs> yeah. when he was let go? Yeah, yeah. He got his um, uh, U- UB40, is that what it was called? The, the unemployment form uh, in the UK. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's right. I, I think we have to talk about Winston, uh, right? We, we, <laughs> we haven't talked about Winston. No, 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 that's right. So they would, at the, uh, the, the early gigs, like when they would play, they they played a lot of gigs with uh, Joy Division. And mm. so they would they would come on, the two of them would come on stage with their tape recorder, plug it in, <laughs> press play, yeah. and start playing along with it. Yeah, yeah, with, with, with Joy Division or Echo and the Bunnymen or whoever <laughs> they, were, they were playing gigs with. And they, yeah. were, they were treated extremely seriously. Like, you know, they were, um, uh, Stephen Morris from, from Joy Division was talking about how, you know, they were, they were a really like really self-assured Liverpool band, and you know we were the the kind of Mancunians who were not quite as self-assured as these Liverpool guys. And and the idea that Joy Division thinks that another band is a bit cooler than them is just, <laughs> and especially when it's they're like the, these two kind of dweebs and their and their tape recorder is so so strange. So it wasn't your band, it was one of your co-host bands that actually opened for OMD at one point, is that right? Yeah, that's right. In 1984, Mark's band Dance Theatre mm-hmm. uh, yeah, did, did open for, for OMD in, in, in Brisbane, which is one of, the, well, one of the major cities in Australia, but, 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 but a little bit of a, of a backwater as well. And uh, yeah, so everyone in Brisbane came along apparently. So... Yeah, it was it was it was an extraordinary kind of honor from you know from from Mark's perspective to be able to support OMD. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't realize that I was going to be the junk culture apolog- apologist that I'm 
I'm the fanboy relative to you guys. Uh, regard, regarding Junk Culture, yeah, I think, I think it's a really patchy album. I can see why they, why they felt the need to try and do something a bit more commercial. And, yeah, I do really, really like the title track. Um, I like Hard Day, White Trash, I think is an absolutely kind of brutal break, breakup song, really kind of, again, kind of quite chilling. Yeah, well, you you actually have singled out the the three songs that I I think I like the best off of this album. So you right, talked about right. the title um, <laughs> yeah. song, which should be noted is uh, I think it's fully uh, an instrumental, right? There's there's yeah. not really any singing. And then White Trash, I think, is pretty good. And then the, the song that you picked to feature is pretty good, too, in the sense that it's not annoying. It's, it's very, like, straightforward, <laughs> poppy thing. And if, they're gonna, if they want to do straightforward pop, then just go and do straightforward pop and don't yeah, throw yeah, yeah. in the gimmicky. There are so many, like, sampled vocals and little stuttering things. And ah, I just... <laughs> I just Ugh. Okay, so but anyway, yeah, let's yeah. listen to a song that from this album I actually do like.
I'm glad it has passed your taste test. <laughs> um, Joseph, that, that particular song, you've, you've set the bar spectacularly lowly there, as in a song that's, that doesn't annoy the hell out of you. Yeah. Um, that, that that's going to be one of, one of your favourites. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful song. It isn't, you know, an all-time uh, OMD classic by, by any stretch of, of the imagination. But, yeah, I mean, I do like the kind of slow groove melancholy um, it was reviewed in Smash It's magazine, the British magazine. Um, it was described as sad and boring by, <laughs> by, by, the, by the reviewer, and the reviewer was a fellow called Neil Tennant, who, um. who, who was working for, for, for Smash It's magazine at the time. He may even have, have been the editor and then ended up forming Pet Shop Boys. In fact, ended up he formed Pet Shop Boys within about 12 months probably. Um, and... Yeah, in terms of the song being described as sad and boring by, by Neil Tennant, Andy McCluskey later said, well, he would know. <laughs> so, so, which I think was a joke from, from Andy, but, but, it, but it was a pretty funny little scouse, if I might use, use that word, perhaps, developing between, between the two electro-pop um, uh, pioneers. It crushes one of the highlights on this album, um, this, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the first, this is the first OMD album that I owned and it was slightly strange. I know this was their attempt to get into the U S market, but it still had some, some bizarreness to it. I mean, a 14 year old kid listening to crush and wondering what the heck this was about, uh, made me think, okay, well, here's the hit songs from it. The rest of it, interesting but not really my thing at the time now as i've grown older i uh, certainly appreciate it much more talk about odd songs the song that you picked i was i was shocked that you picked <laughs> um block 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 because this did not feel like a tony song at all i I've, I've, <laughs> I've talked about you know omd is now in their phase where they're they're doing pop but they also are like obviously really actively trying to be obtuse about it. And this just feels like a very odd, obtuse pop song. So, so Tony, walk me through um, <laughs> this, this song. This is, this is one of my least favorite songs on the album. And I'm just, I'm wondering what, what I'm missing about this song that, that attracted you to it. So this is another dichotomy for me where the music I really liked. The lyrics are a little juvenile. You know, he's talking about going to Detroit. He wants to go to Memphis. He wants to meet the president. It's just very bizarre, like just out there um, lyrics that make no sense, at least to me. But the music, I think, is interesting. And at the end, when they start with the, I guess it's the chorus and, and singing it and how it all comes together. I really enjoy. So it's one of those things where I have to overlook the lyrics, but in total, I really enjoy the song. I don't get annoyed by it. It's, I guess, the way you say. <laughs> I've got a photo of It's a photo by Man It's not very, very much like But it's not
in this instance, Joseph, you are outvoted, I'm afraid. Okay. Uh, I do. I, I love this song. Um, huh? And um, because it contains a lot of American references, um, as you've said, um, Detroit, the president and so on, you might accuse Andy of, of kind of pandering a bit to an American audience. But the actual music itself is so peculiar and eccentric that I think it does kind of transcend that criticism. And, yeah, it's got a good groove to it. The reference to a photo of James Joyce in there is yep. really strange and I think really funny. Um, and funnily enough, the previous year, you know, when, when I um, interviewed Andy, he had just been in the States and so they come directly from America to Australia. And he said, so that they were nowhere in the US, you know, on a, on a commercial level at that stage. And, and I did ask him about, about the lyric in the song Telegraph, which is, um, uh, got, uh, even in America, God bless America, they understand. And I asked, and I asked him about that lyric, because like, it kind of sounds a little bit insulting, Andy, if you don't mind me saying, you know, I said to him. And, 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 and he was kind of saying, look, broadly, you know, like it is meant to be satirical. But he said, he said about America, he said, it frightens me, America frightens me, because you sense it's a country that isn't quite in control of itself. And the only way to get national, to get across the whole country, it has to be so average, so lowest common denominator, hmm. from, from music to politics to food to fashion to everything. It's like dragging along a great big millstone because it's just so damn big. <laughs> and which is, I think, a really interesting assessment mm-hmm. of the... Of the US, I mean, it isn't yep. a unique. It isn't a unique assessment. Like you're not hearing anything that that's, that's surprising there. But just the fact that within 12 months, you know, OMD was trying so hard to kind of do that American thing. Yeah. And 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 the fact that within about 18 months, you know, they had a top five hit in the in in, in the US. Like they they made it work. Yeah. Yeah. But this album does, like you said, you know, I was thinking we haven't talked about 88 seconds and. Greensboro, but that's another song that's referencing something that happened in the United States. So uh, the commonality of of the references being very U.S. influenced is interesting. Well, being an American all of my life um, and (laughs) listening to that quote by Andy, there there was nothing that he said that I disagree with at all. (laughs) I mean, I uh, just recently I, uh, I was... I became aware of the fact that uh, 80% of the nations in the entire world are geographically are smaller than the, the size of Texas. That's one state of yep. 50 states yeah. in, in, the uni- in the United yeah, States. Yeah, so yeah. Um, that is to have a common denominator mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. on all of these very, I mean, it's, a thousand times worse now than it was in the in the eighties, but um, it's it's a tricky thing. And honestly, I find OMD's America stage, you know, where they're targeting our audience, to be the most off-putting 
<laughs> part of their output. I, I think they were way off base. Mm. And it could have been a timing thing because we're, we're talking like 85, 86, 87. That's when New Wave is kind of dying and it, it's getting bloated and everything. Yep. You, yep. The, the production, especially the, their next release, is so overproduced. It sounds mm. so dated and just like sucks the life out of all of the songs. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So <laughs> I, I, I was at the time, you know, this was my first introduction. I thought of them as kind of a Spandau ballet. Uh-huh. Right. In, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. prior two years that they were more like the new romantic sound. That's what I had in my head at the time without any other knowledge about OMD. My influence with music in the early 90s going against grunge for me was Erasure, Pet Shop Boys, and then when I discovered this album, Sugar Tax, I I played these three albums a ton, the mm. latest albums by all three artists, because for me it was kind of the exact opposite of what everybody else was doing, <laughs> and it just really, uh, that's why Sugar Tax is almost my entry point to OMD, even though I listened to their earlier albums. Yeah, yeah I think I think it is it. It is a real showcase of Andy's songwriting yep. talents. Um, and, yeah, I, I was fairly prepared to really dislike this album, um, which I'd never really listened to before. But song by song by song, they're, they're, they're really quite likeable. Yes. It's, uh, um, and, I mean, so, Sailing on the Seven Seas I find a bit frustrating because the first 60 seconds, the first 90 seconds, I'm going, yeah, this song really rocks. It's really, you know, really catchy. But then nothing happens in the second half of the song. It's like, oh, man, introduced a couple of new elements. So, so I'm not bored with the song by the end of it. And, and it does feel a little bit like he really needed to be collaborating with, with Paul so that Paul could say, you know what, I think we need to, to, to add something in the middle eight or whatever. Certainly, to me, sounds like an album recorded by someone who is terrified of, of offending anyone. <laughs> it is, you know, it is like they were they were seriously in debt. They were a million pounds in debt um, in 1988, and, and I think that's when they put out the greatest hits album. And I think um, Andy was still a bit shell shocked um, by the time that this album came out. So yeah, it's it. it 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 is definitely more likable than 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 I than I expected it to be, but mm -hmm. yeah, there are no really kind of leaping out tracks. I don't think. What got me back into OMD is the one track called Apollo Eleven, where they take snippets and samples from the JFK landing a man on the moon speech, along with the Apollo Eleven uh, sounds. And for me, that's what made me 
start to think, what? I've, I've never heard this from this group before to this extent. What's this about? Listen to the album. No, the rest of the album is nothing like that. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the If I was going to kind of wrap up yeah, everything about, uh, about the albums, um, I think it's extraordinary listening to what, one of my favourite things to do with, with OMD on pretty much all the albums is to listen to the songs that didn't make the album. Mm. All their, B, their B-sides and their, mm-hmm. their, their unreleased songs are always worth listening to. And the B-side of the Sailing on the Seven Seas single called Burning is really kind of edgy and experimental and catchy and classic sort of OMD from like the, the, the Dazzle Ships era. And so Andy still had that up his sleeve if he'd sort of chosen to kind of bring that out. how talented mm-hmm. Andy Andy was that he could do this kind of likable pop song sort of stuff and certainly um, Paul as well um, but also could have could have gone down that sort of artier road um, even as late as album number eight so yeah just a spectacularly talented band and you know, mm-hmm. the fact that that their b-sides were still worth listening to by yeah. album eight by album eight is it is pretty unusual, I think. I wanted to say how much I appreciate being invited on this episode. Honestly, for me, listening to all the OMD albums, even though we had to rate them, uh, I enjoyed every single one of them for different reasons. And maybe, you know, like we talked about, uh, various uh, strengths in one album versus another, but just a tremendous body of work by this group that, as an American, I did not fully appreciate. I too am surprised at 
Tony, you were there when when we talked about their their debut album. I just flipped for it. I I just <laughs> I I wish that I had known um, how great that 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 album, the debut album, was a long time ago. Um, boy, it's so good. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So Patrick, I am. I've been looking forward to this uh, for the last couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> I'm. Yeah. I'm looking forward to talking some shop with you. Yes, indeed. It's. It's pretty funny. Um, if you go look at podcasts and you go looking for punk podcasts, there are a ton of them. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. But you start looking for podcasts about new wave music. Just a handful, and I mean like literally a handful, yeah, yeah, like yeah. four or five or six, and yours is one of them. Yeah. And I think that it's safe to say. So your your podcast started in uh, twenty seventeen. Yeah. I think that known pleasures your podcast. You are the elderly statesman <laughs> of of new wave music podcasts. Wow. I didn't. I didn't realize that. I, I wasn't aware of such a type of podcast existing when we mm. started. But I certainly mm. wasn't wasn't an expert. I mean, I, when when we started, I I didn't even know if I wanted to do a podcast mm-hmm. because I thought, well, the the three of us bozos sitting around talking about post punk. I mean, we, we we entertain ourselves, but. You know, I'm going to be stumbling and bumbling around while I'm trying to work out what I think of New Gold Dream, you know, the Simple Minds album compared to Sons and Fascination, and I'm not. I'm going to forget song titles, and I'm going to be my mind's going to wander off to who to who knows what. You know, as a as it does in normal conversation, who who would care about that? Mm-hmm. And fortunately, the the answer to the solution to that problem was to add songs. So mm-hmm. just just to have less of us talking and more song song snippets. So yeah, that's that that's the secret to our to our longevity, I think. Yeah, well, it's funny. I when I was preparing to to start our podcast, and I was talking about with friends. Mo- most of my friends are significantly younger than I am, and um, one of them in uh, I think. He's in his late twenties, early thirties, and I said, "Yeah, we're we're going to do a podcast about new wave music." And he goes, "Wow, that's a really obscure niche <laughs> subject." I'm like, "What are you talking about? That's like the music of an entire generation." Yeah, that's right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But but I'm I'm impressed that someone of that age even knew what what this era was. As you've. I'm sure you've discovered by now we we give ourselves and by we I mean me um, yeah. <laughs> a lot of leeway to be uh, to be very expressive about our opinions, mm. um, which is always feels a little dangerous. But I'll, I'll say we've you know for the most part our our audience is um, you know as as long as you're humble about the fact that you're just expressing an opinion and not stating as an empirical yes. fact. Yeah, fact yeah. Um, very, very forgiving about that. Um, we, we occasionally get pushback, but it's always like, hey, I actually really like this album and here's why. It's just a conversation <laughs> back and forth. But I'll tell you the one thing that 
we do get slammed about the most, and I'm sure that you, you and your your colleagues have, um, you know, have some insight into this. Is genres? Boy, do we get do we get smacked down for calling this band post punk ah, as opposed yeah, to yeah, new yeah, wave yeah. or punk or yeah, it's really yeah, yeah. more power pop than it is post punk right. and yeah, boy people yeah. really get worked up about that i it never occurred to yeah. me that would be such an emotional issue for for people yeah certainly whether or not an act is 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 post punk has certainly created issues for us so someone like mm-hmm. ian jury for instance is he post-punk? Um, right. are, the, are the police post-punk? Um, Adam and the Ants are the kind of classic one for, for, for us. Um, and we've, we've done a little podcast, like mini podcast, which, which we've started doing a little bit. Um, so of, to cut a long story short, um, the Spandau Ballet song. And so, so it's like you kind of dare to go down that road and you lead yourself really open. And I think you're exactly right about those kind of categories that you're much likelier to be forgiven for, you know, someone thinking that, oh, look, you know, I like um, Killing Joke. You know, I like that Killing Joke album more than that other Killing Joke album that you said is better than this Killing Joke album. Um, but yeah, the uh, jo- the genre stuff is 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 absolutely crucial, and I know how much I pinned my colours to particular masks. You know, mm-hmm. at the time in in the early eighties, it's like well, Hall and Oates. You know, they that like Private Eye. That's not that's not that's that's not new wave. You know, yeah. look, look at their hair. That can't be new wave. And but he but he's wearing sunglasses. Maybe he is new wave. And yeah. Was he wearing a skinny tie in that clip? Hang on, I'm getting confused now. stuff was absolutely crucial in in real time in you know 79 and i know how unforgiving i was in my judgments yeah of those of those sorts of things so it doesn't doesn't surprise me that it persists yeah well i i have uh, I, I don't think i'm the first one to use this phrase but but it is a phrase that i came up independently on my <laughs> own which is new wave tourists so you know oh. bands bands that started out as something else and then when new wave got big they kind of like shifted over we did an episode um ourselves of 
of um, well, we didn't use the the term Taurus. It's it's a great it, 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 it's a great word, and I'm and I'm sorry we didn't use it. Um, I think I think I can't remember the, the uh, term we used, but but yeah, we, we we kind of listed various people. So Paul McCartney on mm-hmm. on on the McCartney Two album, um, a little bit of Hall and Oates, um, but my favourite was the Village People. So oh, the Village oh, yeah. People, they had a new romantic album cover. It was a cover. It was a as in. The album artwork was was near romantic at least, where these guys who you know we can all picture how to just how how extraordinary they look and you know you know really impressive physical specimens, mm-hmm. and but just with a bit of a bit of eyeliner and zigzags on on their faces and that kind of stuff, and it is absolutely hilarious and I think quite kind of admirable. Yeah, I don't I don't want to get too cynical about that stuff. No, 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 and I don't consider that term to be particularly derisive because there was actually some pretty good music um, created by these artists that kind of like dip their toe into yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the new yeah. wave field. So, you know, some, some of the stuff that um, pops to mind, um, I love Fire of Unknown Origin by Blue Oyster Cult. Wow, um, I, don't, I don't know that song at all. Oh, the, the, um, the, it's an um, an album. I mean, there's, oh, there's album. That, okay. yeah, that's a, that's a title track. Uh, it's actually a Patti Smith cover. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. but the whole album is, um, Blue Oyster Cult doing new wave pretty, pretty well. I love that album. Um, Tom Petty. Yep. Yeah. 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 Don't come around here no more. Yep, yep. And that stuff, uh, Pretty good. Don't come around here no more. Don't come around here no more. Whatever you're looking for. Hey! Don't come around here no more. I'm giving up. He was considered to be sort of more or less ge- genuinely new wave for, for for a while there. I mean, I've 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 got a book I've, I've got a book from like 1980 or, or 81 called um, the the New Music, which mm. which is an investigation written by a couple of Australian journalists Stuart Coop and Glenn A Baker, and yeah, and and certainly Tom Petty is in there. For me, even when when I was in high school, so. <clears throat> I'm not telling you, obviously, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, but for some of our listeners, you know, it was originally the phrase was the new wave, right? So it's <laughs> the new wave of music. That was the term yeah. that was the used in the late 70s and early 80s. It, ca- it, it was a very big umbrella. So it, it covered yeah. punk, it covered post-punk, it covered um, craft work. Yeah. And then... By the time I graduated from high school, so like in 87, I would start having 
conversations with kids that were, you know, four or five years younger than me. And they were, when they used the term new wave, they were talking very, very specifically about very like synth poppy stuff like okay, level yeah, 40 yeah. level okay, 42 yeah, yeah, yeah. and yaz and oh, that's uh nick kershaw yep, and yep. and stuff like that and i remember kind of bristling and going wait 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 wait, wait. <laughs> but what about you know what about peter gabriel's face, yeah. face melting album or the b52s yeah. or yeah. you know yeah. this this stuff that doesn't fit within that at all yeah 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 so, no, i mean i think these these are the kinds of things that that books can be written about yeah um, and have been written about <laughs> yeah and and we will continue to write books about this <laughs> so our our podcast you know about 75% of our audience is uh, located here in the United States. Right. Um, and then I think it's about 5 or 6% are in Great Britain. And then the next is uh, Canada and Australia. Ah, and, right. And we've had some um, great correspondence from some of our listeners in Australia. Oh, that's great. Um, I've learned a lot <laughs> about the um, just the Australian mindset when it comes to this kind of music yeah. at that yeah. period, and but this is the first time I've I've had a chance to talk to an actual Australian who was boots on the ground as it was all uh, all kind of developing, and so I have a ton of questions. <laughs> Well, I'm feeling I'm feeling a bit nervous right now as a spokesperson for a nation. But so because I mean everything everything you were saying earlier on, Joseph, about well, it's, of course you like it's always just your opinion, and so suddenly I'm the I'm the, pres I'm the president of Australian New Wave. I'm going to ask you this question anyways. Yeah. Uh, so to. To me, when I, I mean, if I were to rattle off my favorite post-punk and new wave artists, they almost exclusively are either U.S. or yeah. in the U.K. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Not, not anything intentional, but that's just the yeah, way yeah, that yeah, it yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. turns out. So my, my, I'm really curious, in the late 70s, early 80s, in Australia, did you feel like Australia was a player in the development of that kind of music, or was it a little bit of like a outside looking in? Was it all yeah, coming yeah, from yeah. from um, the UK, probably yeah, mostly yeah. from the UK, and then from from the US? Or were you you? I I know there were punk and new wave bands yeah, in yeah. Australia. Were, were they first and foremost in your I, I know you're a big um simple minds fan australia or when you're in australia you're very much used to feeling like you are a million miles from what's going on because mm. that's that's australia's natural space mm. so so certainly from my point of view growing up in australia i and and loving post-punk music particularly i suppose overwhelmingly um English, British bands, but but yeah. certainly some some American ones, but you know, absolutely B fifty twos and 
the cars and and Devo and Blondie and and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there, there was the occasional Australian band that was really interesting. I mean, the the, the Saints have a place in the sort of the the punk firmament. Mm-hmm. Um, and fairly soon after, uh, Nick Cave and the Birthday Party mm-hmm. came came through. Bands like the Go Betweens had some kind of cut through at, at least on an on an indie level with with the Rough Trade label before Rough Trade decided that hey this band called the Smiths maybe we can make more money out of them. Mm-hmm. So um, and so so fr- from my point of view, the bands that I love who are post-punk bands in, in Australia never, never sold, you know, more than a handful of records out, outside of Australia. So any, mm-hmm. any names that I mentioned would be, you know, pretty kind of out of left field. And one of the things we'd actually, that, that, that Mark and Graham and I have talked about doing is a kind of a lost bands kind of, like mm. little ep- little episodes about bands that that we particularly love, mm-hmm. so so there are bands who I might mention who who I mean one of my favourites is Mio Two Four Five, and they may not even have a song on on Spotify. So I mean when last time I looked, they they didn't apart from a couple of live things, and um, and so them and the, uh, the band uh, the Models who had a minor hit with. Um, uh, out, out of mind, out of Uh, got to about number 40 or 50 or, or something in the States, but their earlier stuff, classic thing of forget if you leave, <laughs> go, to, go to their, their, their earlier stuff. But, yeah, so, so from my point of view, my, my favourite my favorite bands, uh, and they, they didn't need to get any bigger than being, being massive in Melbourne. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so, so that was always enough for me. Yeah. Well, we've been fortunate that um, uh, a couple of, of listeners in Australia have been um, very uh, responsive as far as our, our request to to be, you know, as complete as we can yeah, yeah, about yeah. about about Australian bands. And um, and so we have. Rob and I uh, have discovered quite a few Australian early Australian punk and new wave bands that we were wow. not aware of okay. and the, the 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 two that I that have really resonated with me that I wasn't <laughs> familiar with at all yeah. uh, so of course right now we're at 1980 so so these are these are albums that that were released up to this point um loved 
the uh, it, this was actually released in January of 1980. Um, X Aspirations by X. Oh, uh, yep, yep, yep. Boy, what a what a great solid little straight ahead punk album with <laughs> with some fantastic bass that that bass player just kind of blows my yep, mind yep, yep. um and really good songwriting too yeah yeah i'm curious so we here in the united states we uh, there's a, a a pretty famous post-punk uh, like uh cow punk band called x from yeah, la yeah, yeah yeah um in australia if you say the the band name x are you referring to the Australian X? <laughs> yeah, I think they would definitely be be more familiar with the Australian X. Uh-huh. But I but, but I was always aware of, of of both X's. They were always a bit too kind of loud and scary for me. Uh-huh. Uh, the Australian X. That was uh, uh, uh-huh. Ian R- Ian Rylan was uh-huh. the kind of main guy there, and he he was one of the hardest core of hardcore rock and roll. Mm. Blokes. Another Australian band discovery uh, um, that I've been really excited about, and I believe that it was the debut album was released in '79, was The Reels. Oh. What a fun band! I would love that. I would love to see them live. They they sound like <laughs> they would be so much fun live. Yeah, I saw them many times. Really? Um, wow. Yeah, with, with the electronic thing. Like, the, I mean, they're classic synthy pop, but so weird. And, uh-huh. and I had the, um, d- during my um, interviewing musicians phase, where it's kind of lasted from like 82, 83, 84, when I was like 18, 19, 20, I, I interviewed the singer from The Reels, Dave Mason, uh-huh. um, and had the most, one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my life was with <laughs> Dave Mason, the singer from The Reels, because I had to go to his hotel room, which is in a very seedy hotel in, in St Kilda, a seat, the suburb of St Kilda, a, quite a seedy part of Melbourne, as it was at the time and I was living in Melbourne. Um, and I kind of knocked, knocked on the door. It's like 12.30, like it's lunchtime, and like... To interview someone from like from a rock band before four pm is a bit of a risk. So I kind of mm-hmm. knock on his door, visit hotel room, and he kind of stumbles out, and he's in his pajamas. So he's in his pajamas, and he's watching like the kind of midday show, like a like like a morning breakfast kind of you know variety entertainment show. It was the uh, Mark Walt show for, for anyone interested, um, and then got back into bed. And I was supposed to be doing the interview with a friend of mine who had the tape recorder. So we couldn't start the interview until the guy with the tape recorder turned up. So for about 20 minutes, I was sitting on the end of the bed of the singer from the reels. 
<laughs> well, he was in his pajamas, and we were both mm -hmm. watching this excruciating midday variety kind of show. <laughs> and and I was just and and he was famously surly, the singer, like um, kind of t temperamental. I'm like a fascinating guy, really funny guy. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so when I think of the Reels, I think not only of the fact that I absolutely love their music, and I don't know how they didn't have half a dozen top ten hits in the UK at least around 79, 80, 81, because their songs are really classic sort of the kinds of songs that were getting into the charts in the UK, not in the US, but so yeah, they, yeah, if there was any band, I mean, you know, we were talking about bands, bands who I like, you know, who, who I mean, sold half a dozen records overseas, the reels are probably right at the top of that list, actually. So, so, so I'm really thrilled that you mentioned them. Well, uh, just looking for opportunities to actually sprinkle in some songs here. Do you have a favorite real song? We'll just plop in here. Well, I think Love Will Find A Way was their first single, I think. And I remember seeing, seeing that for the first time when I was maybe 14 or 15 or something. And it is, it is just a really just, I think, ir irresistible song. And I think the opening lines are Billy, Billy caught the hope train and he didn't know where it went. And I think that's a really good opening line. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you catch the hope train. Where's the hope train going? It does say that Dave Mason spent three years in his bedroom because of depression. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you seeing him in pajamas may not be that unusual. <laughs> no, that's right. No, certainly he has had he has had um, uh, difficulties along the way, and I've and I've seen the reels play in the last six or seven years, um, and and I thought they were they were really good. But mm. yeah, he's he, he's had he certainly had struggles, and he was in a film actually with Nick Cave. Um, in, in in the early eighties, the name of it um, uh, uh, eludes me. But yeah, I d it, it has always frustrated me a little bit that someone like Nick Cave has become a bit of a countercultural hero in a sort of yeah. a global a global sense. And someone like like Dave Mason, who when when we eventually when my friend eventually turned up with the tape recorder, we we had a really kind of interesting interview mm -hmm. uh, where he was and and I was just hanging off every word he was saying because I just love the reel so much. So another thing I want to ask you about is um, 
countdown kids. Yes. So so we we I uh, we have a listener in in Australia who was one of the countdown kids and right. um has has been feeding me a ton of really fascinating um information about I mean what sounded like a bit of a movement um there in Australia um, sounds so cool. As a as a kid who grew up way out in the middle of nowhere, um, just like sounds like the coolest way to to spend your your high school years to be to to be in this to be be in the thick of it. And and um, she is uh, she's been very generous with information. Definitely something that I want to do a bonus episode about at some point. I, I, but yeah, trying to yeah. f- trying to find the right guess <laughs> for it, but it sounds yeah. like it was. So let's. This is not something that we've ever discussed on the 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 podcast. So so let's talk about what the count. So countdown kids were. So in the in the fifties and sixties here in the United States, there were TV shows that sounded like it was sort of the equivalent of that where they would play like the like Dick Clark's top 20 yeah, yeah, and yeah, would, it would yeah, be, yeah, yeah. the the artists would come on and play the songs and there'd be kids in the audience and it would have a sort of a cultural impact as far as really um you know a being a boost to those artists so what yeah. kind of role did um this so the the program was called Countdown. Is is that yes, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So it was it was more or less an Australian version of of Top of the Pops. I yeah. don't know if I don't know if that's a helpful cultural reference for for, for your seventy five percent American uh, l- listenership. In Australian terms, it was the, the show Countdown, which started in nineteen seventy four and ran until nineteen eighty seven, was a show that pretty much everyone watched. It was I'd be surprised if it wasn't the highest rating show on Australian television. It was Sunday 6pm and it was the starting point for just dozens and dozens of bands and so some of, from from the very earliest days it, it was really kind of groundbreaking and for instance ACDC um, very early on were, were on Countdown and so the Bon Scott era of of ACDC, there, there's a clip which I'm sure is on is on YouTube, where I mean Angus famously had the kind of schoolboy outfit, but there was one particular um, episode of Countdown where where Bon Scott dressed as a schoolgirl, so he's got like the schoolgirl's wig, and so he's doing like and and he looks really really creepy. He's wearing like a like like a school dress, the whole thing. So, so, so there's all that. There was another ACDC appearance where Angus started off the show or started off the like performance dressed as a gorilla, mm. and and in a cage which descended onto the stage. So it was it was it was just completely <laughs> surreal and bizarre television. And moving on a few years, bands like Blondie and B52s just got their major international break on the Australian TV show Countdown. So so was was this typically um, just cuts played or the artists would actually come and play live? 
Well, uh, well both, both, both. Oh, okay. But mm. but but I mean, for instance, um, Blondie's first international hit, yeah, was was in Australia, and 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 it was a song that I don't even know if, if American listeners will really know, but um, uh, in in the flesh, mm-hmm. which which was the B side of their single, but the fellow who ran the countdown show, I think, decided that he liked the B side better. So, so he played, and, and Blondie had done clips for both the A side and the B side, and so yeah, that song got to like certainly like top five in Australia, mm. mm-hmm. just specifically because it, it was played on the on on the countdown show. Darling, darling. For instance, at um, the B-52s had their first hit uh, globally in Australia with uh, Rock Lobster, mm. and there are there, there there's the official film clip. Actually, we we recorded an episode of of our podcast last night um, on the B-52s, so this mm. is why it's kind of prominent yeah. in my mind. But yeah, the official film clip for Rock Lobster. Um, I think it's a live clip. I don't know why it's the official clip, but that has had, I think, 11 million views on YouTube and the Australian, their their appearance on the Australian show Countdown of Rock Lobster has also had 11 million views. Wow. Wow. So so that's how, that was the kind of reach, if you like, in some uh-huh. senses of, of that show. Uh-huh. Well, last month we were covering January of 1980, and that sees the release of the Romantics debut album, which ah, had yes. um, What I Like About You, which yeah, is now yeah. their most popular song, was not a hit in the United States at no. the time, <laughs> but yeah. was first and foremost a hit in Australia. And um, according to one of our listeners, was was because it was championed um on on countdown yeah absolutely well the the i mean i i remember that song being massive in australia and you know there's talk talking in your sleep which is considered it's quite weird the fact that i don't think talking in your sleep was a big hit in australia ironically so people in australia here in the the yeah yeah and huge and and i think it's a way way better song Mm -hmm. in in my opinion but yeah but uh yes yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's circle back to your podcast to kind of wrap things up. So, yep, sure. um, you and your co-hosts um, Mark and Graham have been doing this for six plus years now. I am a big podcast listener, and I have there have been hundreds of podcasts that I have 
tried to listen to and not gotten very far and just like did a, and sort of the, the but then there are other podcasts that I've been listening to for years and years and years and years and sort of the the x factor the 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 key element is people having fun together and being friends with each yeah, other yeah. and really being passionate about about the subject matter and you guys check off all of the boxes <laughs> so um just a just a any anyone who enjoys this podcast um really you owe it to yourselves to go check out uh no first of all my suspicion is that probably most of our listeners are already aware <laughs> of your podcast and listening to it because there's so few of them out there <laughs> and um, probably vice versa so, yeah, so, yeah. so why, why are we even bothering with this? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm surprised it's taken us this long <laughs> yeah. to, to No, that's connect. right. Yeah, that's yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and can I say, I, I feel exactly the same way about deep dives, deep cuts. So, yeah, like that, that, that kind of, you can't manufacture the kind of um, just enjoying each other's company, basically. So I think we're about ready to, to wrap up. Thank you so much. Uh, Patrick, for uh, you've been very generous with your time and knowledge. Um, any last thoughts before we go? Well, I think people have probably heard enough of this voice for the time being. <laughs> um, I'd just like to say what a fantastic time I've had talking to you both, Joseph and Tony. I'm sorry, Rob couldn't be here as well. The pressure was on from the start. You, you said that like <laughs> I was a Rob replacement and I've been sort of quaking in my boots all the way through this recording. <laughs> Because you know, I've listened to to Robin Action, and he is irreplaceable. So um, I think I, we can certainly say that we're pleased collectively that the squeaky chair yeah. has gone <laughs> forever. But uh, no, just thanks so much for for, for inviting me on. I've, I've just had a fantastic time. Excellent, excellent. Um, t Tony, you, I've been sort of dominate dominating this conversation. Do you have any last questions for Patrick? No, thank you so much. I uh, like I said, the podcast uh, that you run is just wonderful, and I learned so much from it, and really enjoyed your time with us tonight. Yeah, I've I've decided my my new routine when we're getting ready to do a deep dive on an uh, on an artist is to just go back to your podcast and see if you've done an episode <laughs> on that band because I've it's like I feel like. Half of my knowledge of OMD I got from your guys' episode. <laughs> so I'll let you guys well, do all the work. <laughs> yeah, well, you will be alarmed to hear that we do not fact check. <laughs> so we are back in the present. Rob, I, I really hope that at some point you, you get a chance to have a conversation with, with Patrick because he's he's a firecracker. He's he's a lot of fun oh, and yeah. a wealth of information as as you could plainly hear. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, uh, uh, well, y you stated that there's a possibility that he'll come back. Like he sounds like he's up for it and you know, we've got a lot of content to cover between now and 1980s, you know, 1986. So yeah, yeah. um, yeah, it'll be cool to, it'll be cool to, to hang with him. His podcast is, um, known pleasures and have you guys had a chance to listen to their recent released B-52s episode? It's excellent. It's no. great. 
Oh, oh my goodness. Cool. I have. I've listened to quite a few episodes, have not listened to the most recent, so I will do that. Yeah. Well, uh, it's very informative getting, getting a, an a Australian perspective on the B-52s. Um, and, you know, they're all musicians, so, so actually one of the, the hosts come in with a couple of guitars and have, the, have them strung in two different ways and kind of demonstrate some of the cool, innovative things that Ricky Wilson was doing as a guitarist um, at, the, nice. at the beginning of the, the B-52. So definitely they, they cover the first four albums, um, with a more in-depth conversation about Miss Mesopotamia than we we had, uh, definitely worth it. Even if you've you're very familiar with the B-52s and have you know listened to our episode, um, they cover a completely. They come from a completely different point of view, and it's definitely worth a listen. Um, Kudos to them for, for another excellent episode. Okay, well, Happy New Year's, everybody. Um, any last thoughts before we go, Rob or Tony? No, you know what? I'm, uh, again, just looking forward to what we have coming up. So, Yeah, welcome to 2024. Yeah. We're going to party like it's 1980. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay, everybody, we'll talk to you uh, hopefully very soon. See ya. Thank you. See ya.